If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What happened before the Norman Conquest of 1066? Well, for today's episode, BBC History Magazine content director Dave Musgrove is speaking to Dr Emily Ward about the earlier conquest of England in 1016 and how we need to understand the first half of the 11th century to properly get to grips with Hastings and all that followed. Before we start, though, we had so much material in this chat that we've produced a longer bonus episode of this podcast. If you want to know more about 11th century slavery and to hear Emily talk in detail about the role of women in this story, then head to our website, historyextra.com, and search for Emily Ward. Also, you might be interested in a blog post that Dave Musgrove has written on this topic on our website. Just search for blog on historyextra.com. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Emily Joan Ward, Moses and Mary Finlay Research Fellow at Darwin College, Cambridge. She's a medieval historian with a particular interest in child kingship in England, Scotland, France and Germany. And she's edited, along with Professor Laura Ash, a new book called Conquests in 11th Century England, 1016-1066. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Emily, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? 
I'm good, thank you, and thank you for having me on today. No problem. Um, so, so the book you've edited uh, is is normally about 1016 and 1066, two years of conquest. Um, I think probably everyone listening to this podcast knows what happens in 1066 when William the Conqueror defeats King Harold at Hastings uh, and and all that follows from that. But a lot of folk might be less sure about what happened in 1016 uh, when the, uh, the the Danish uh, ruler Knut defeated the English king Edmund and ended up as king of England himself. Himself, uh, by the end of that year, as well as having uh, Scandinavian territories. So I suppose the first point that uh, we should look at is, is uh, why we need to get beyond 1066 when we're studying the 11th century. And just to kick us off, I note that to one of the contributors uh, in, in this collection, it's a collection of essays, I should say, actually, from uh, from from a variety of contributors. And it? so it's a really great book with loads of uh, material in it. We're not going to be able to cover everything, but, but we're going to try and uh, track across as much as we can. So Charles Inslee, one of the contributors, lays it out in the opening paragraph of his essay where he notes that it is far less clear that the events of 1016 have lodged themselves in the English national consciousness beyond the world of academic history. If 1016 is remembered at all, it tends to be seen as one, one, as one of the 11th century conquests, a kind of rehearsal for 1066. So uh, I think that's quite a nice uh, phrase, a way of putting it. But so, so why do we need to get past you know 1066 being the be-all and end-all of the 11th century? Yes, and I think I uh, completely agree. Obviously, 1066 will be far more familiar to listeners. Um, but this whole period of the 11th century is a really exceptional period in English history. We've got multiple conquests in a very short space of time. That's very highly unusual in the rest of uh, English history throughout the Middle Ages. Um, and in 1066, it's worth remembering that perhaps at least a quarter of the population would have had some memory of Knut's reign as well. So this is happening in quite a short space of time. You've got quite a quick turnover um, of different conquests. And there's memory of the conquest there, um, if not actually of the conquest itself, of living under Danish rule. Um, so there's quite a distorted picture when we think about the 11th century, and weight is usually placed on 1066. But this is more of an artificial divide that's sort of seen in uh, the way in which history is written uh, in the academic world, um, but also practices of disciplinary uh, studies, so things like breaks um, in English literature, thinking about stopping at the conquest because it be then becomes a far more Latinate um, period of writing history. And, and those are quite artificial divides. And what we're trying to do with this volume, and um, I think what's true, and you can see across many of the essays, is that that's not really, doesn't hold up under, under sort of any rigorous pushing. Um, the Danish conquest isn't a rehearsal, as uh, Charles Inslee says in his uh, in his essay. And with but without it, 1066 would have looked very different. And I don't want to sort of engage in hypothetical history, but perhaps wouldn't have ever happened. And the conquests are very inextricably connected. Um, you mentioned my own research interests in uh, childhood, uh, royal succession, uh, and um, rulership. But the succession in 1066, you can't really understand all those competing claimants and contenders for the throne unless you understand what's happened in the 50 years beforehand, after the Danish conquest and uh, the removal of uh, um, Ethelred as king, uh, and then his son, Edmund Ironside. 
Edmund Ironside, then his children go into exile as a result of the Danish conquest, and then grandchildren uh, of uh, Edmund Ironside are then floating around in Europe um, in exile, and Edgar Etheling comes back and is brought back to England in the 1050s by Edward the Confessor, potentially as heir to the throne in 1066. So you really can't understand this period of English history without thinking about both of these conquests in the same in the same historical uh, sort of vision. Um, it's also worth thinking this is a period of uh, English history in which we see very important contexts um, and connections with the European continent as well. And I think that's another thing that comes across throughout the volume. Um, we're looking at English politics, which is a sort of hybrid politics, it's got aspects of um, contact with Europe, it's got aspects of contact with Scandinavia, and it's adopting and amalgamating different uh, aspects of politics in society and in culture as well. And I think what this period shows for us, and the reason that's really important to think about 1016 as well as 1066, is this idea of comparative history. It's not just a comparison of conquests, but it's also thinking about England's relationship with other parts of Britain, England's relationship with the wider world, with wider Europe, and really that personal kind of intimate understanding of people's lives, which is so much a part of a historian's uh, task. These are individual lives and families who have been shaped by violence and trauma and by experiences of conquest over a longer period of time as well. Okay, well, hopefully we will tackle um, some of those themes uh, in the, in the conversation. Um, it's it's an interesting thought, isn't it, that you just mentioned there of somebody standing at the Battle of Hastings having some sort of memory or recollection of, of uh, previous conquests. I mean, that's that's uh, that that makes you stop and think a bit, doesn't it? Um, but uh, let, let's talk about let's go back to ten sixteen. You say Knut, I said Knut. I'm not sure which ones which ones appropriate, but uh, uh, I suppose I suppose your pronunciation um, uh, looks a bit closer to the way it's spelt. Um, how, just, just a matter of interest, actually. How it used to be C A N U T E, didn't it? Canute, and now most people do C N U T, which I guess is the is the Scandinavian spelling of it. That's that's the reason why we got to to that point. Um, so, Canute, how how did he get to the throne? How did he become king of England in 1016? Can you sketch out a little bit of the story for us there? Yeah. So we've had a long history, um, all the way back through. Um, several centuries of contact with uh, Vikings and uh, both in raiding and then in settling in England. Um, but when we come into King Ethelred's reign uh, in the 10th century, we have the resumption of some of these Viking raids from the 980s onwards. And that's a resumption after about 100 years of less, uh, less focused Viking attacks in England. And it's called, within the scholarship and by some people, the Second Viking Age. So initial attacks are quite locally focused, they're uh, coastal, Wales, Cornwall, and there's an increase then in the 1990s, but the acquisition of wealth and movable uh, objects is really the primary goal of that. And that's touched on in Niels Lund's chapter in the volume, thinking about what was the impact of this period of Viking uh, renewal of act activity in England. But as we go through the 990s, they start to adopt a new tactic towards um, towards the Vikings by large sums of tribute. It's not entirely new. Other kings have used this form before, but it's definitely larger sums. And we're seeing huge sums, sort of £16,000 here, £20,000 here, £30,000 here, being paid to 
Vikings as tribute, but also the uh, employment of Vikings under a court context as mercenaries as well, so supporting the English kings in fighting other groups of Vikings as well. So as we go through Ethelred's reign, we see an increase in Viking attacks, and we also see uh, this clear tension between the English and the Danish in England as well. One of the key events for that is perhaps uh, the St. Bryce's Day Massacre in November 1002. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says there that uh, all the Danish men in England were murdered. But probably what's happening there is a response to Danish mercenaries who have been brought into court service, but then are still raiding and uh, causing violence across uh, parts of England. And there's a real anger at those Danish mercenaries within England. So we've got a king who fears that the Danes are perhaps going to take his kingdom and to kill him. And we enter the 11th century with a real, perhaps a very pessimistic note. We've got uh, financial pressures on the king and the kingdom through tribute and through um, ransoms. We've got trauma and violence. We've also got a large famine. So there's a big environmental um, problem there in 1005. That puts off the Vikings for a year, but they then come back in uh, to England. It only sort of delays them for a little bit. And as we go into that final decade of Ethelred's reign, he's largely judged on this last decade of his reign, which is associated with two large Viking attacks. So we have in uh, 1007, the Great Fleet, which arrives at Sandwich. It's paid off the same year, about £36,000. Ethelred does try and fight back. He builds some new ships, but they're destroyed by storms. There's a public programme of penitence, uh, which starts is kicked off in 1009, um, trying to see... We see here this idea that actually the Vikings are perhaps a punishment, divine punishment, um, on the English uh, for not having um, engaged with God in the way that they should. So that becomes a really big theme towards the end of Ethelred's reign as well. And then in 1009, we have the arrival of Thorkel's army. Now, Thorkel the Tall comes and he plunders cities like Thet Thetford, Cambridge, Northampton, Oxford. And it seems that that's a real turning point. Um, that's one of these points where the kingdom has been pushed too far. And by 1011, the realm is not really coping. So Ethelred sues for peace um, but Thorkel's army does a complete about turn, and the following year they're in Ethelred's service, again as mercenaries, fighting over other Vikings such as Svein Forkbeard. So Svein comes into the picture around this time. He's probably been in England before uh, a couple of times in the 990s, but it's clear when he comes in 1013 he's come to conquer. He has experience in England raiding, and that's really crucial to understanding how weak the kingdom is at this point and where to attack first of all. So he goes up to Sandwich and his fleet arrives uh, in Sandwich in 1013. And it's quite, quite apparent that very quickly people come to terms with him and he manages to secure um, the support of uh, local communities quite quickly. He moves down from uh, south from the Humber and then across west to Bath. Ethelred and Thorkel, uh, and Thorkel's still at Ethelred's side, hold London, but the citizens submit to uh, Svein as well. So there's a real lack of uh, willingness to engage in more battles and more violence uh, with the D Danes at this point. So Svein is the king of Denmark, but his son is Knut, um, 
so this is a rather roundabout way of saying <laughs> where where Knut comes into the picture. But one of the things that Svein does that is really crucial in those early years um, for consolidating power is betrothing and then marrying his son uh, Knut to a wealthy landowning family um, up in uh, up in Mercia, and Elfgifu of Northampton becomes Knut's wife. And that's a really important point where you see um, Svein having knowledge of who he needs to forge alliances with in order to cement his power uh, in England and give himself a better chance of securing the conquest. So eventually Svein uh, has obviously uh, managed to remove people from London. Uh, Ethelred depart and his family have departed and gone over to Normandy in exile. And Svein we're not quite sure if he was actually king or not. He's definitely never included in uh, in sort of, you know, those popular riddles you learn at school or popular rhymes you learn at school as a king of England. But the Witten certainly had a meeting and he doesn't seem to have had a coronation. And there is an 11th century king list um, surviving in Durham, which does list him in the kings of England. So he's sort of uh, on, on the fringes of being a king at that point in uh, 1013. But he dies, unfortunately, uh, early in February 1014, and the army turned to recognise his son, Knut. But it's at this point that other aspects of English society were not so keen to uh, take a second Danish ruler, and the Wittans seemed to prefer Ethelred, so they recall him from exile in Normandy, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle calls him their natural lord, so there's still some understanding there that Ethelred has a far greater claim, obviously, to the kingship than Knut does, but it's not just about military power in order to gain the kingdom. It's also about needing to secure the support of the senior magnates and needing this aura of legitimacy as well. So Ethelred returns in spring 1014 and he promises to rule more justly than before and he makes these promises to, um, to the English community. And Knut is expelled after Easter Ethelred is back on the throne. Uh, Ethelred's family have probably returned with him at this point as well. And Knut, we're not quite sure what happens in that intervening year, sort of 1015. He's probably in Denmark, possibly making a claim for the Danish throne against his brother Harold. Um, but he comes to England and begins his own campaign for the throne in 1015. And that's a real sudden appearance. He, his army is made up of people from all over Scandinavia, um, but it doesn't seem as if anyone's expecting him to come back quite as quickly as he does. OK, but he does come back. He does, yes. <laughs> um, so he uh, he arrives in England um, and Ethelred is ill. Uh, so we have the reigning king uh, close to death. Ethelred's son, Edmund Ironside, who is his son and likely heir, there's been a bit of strife at court at that point. Um, so Edmund has challenged one of the magnates, uh, Iadric Striona, um, who's well known at this point. I mean, perhaps I should introduce Iadric for your listeners. He's a bit of a pantomime villain. Uh, he Later sources, we have a lot of information about him, but a lot of it very negative. Um, these later sources... Uh, attack his um, duplicity, his treachery. Uh, Iadric Striona is the villain we all love to hate. But he's very crucial to what's happening at this point. And we'll see him sort of coming through uh, that early year of Knut as king as well. 
But Canut has local support because Yadric switches to his side when he's arrived. So Yadric's been um, senior magnate at Ethelred's court, but switches to Canut. And he takes with him 40 ships. So Canut has his own military. He has local English military as well. There's also a possibility that at that point, Thorkel the Tall, who has been up until that point with Ethelred on Ethelred's side, perhaps also switches as well. And by Christmas 1015, Canut is recognised as king. And Ethelred then dies later in uh, 1016 in London, so on the 23rd of April 1016. And we have Edmund Ironside, who is elected as king and probably crowned as well. But he then fights a series of battles against the Danes in the south. So it's not obvious at this point that Knut will succeed as king. He's got a strong, uh, strong military claim. He's obviously the son of the a previous king or possible contender for the king, uh, Svein. But London is still resisting. Uh, Iadric then abandons Knut, so we have uh, him switching back to the English side again. And one of the decisive events then is the Battle of Assenden on the 18th of October 1016, almost exactly 50 years before the conquest in 1066. We're not quite sure where this battle happens. Uh, probably guess that it's Ashingdon in Sussex, um, but it's a real change of fortune moment. It's clearly a point where Knut has a decisive victory and Edmund Ironside is forced to come to some form of agreement. So Knut and Edmund divide England between them. Wessex goes to Edmund and Mercia to Knut. But then Knut gets an even bigger stroke of luck than simply a military victory because Edmund Ironside dies at the end of November. And as far as we can tell from the sources, there isn't any suggestion actually at the time that that's foul play. Um, it does seem that he died of illness um, or some underlying health condition. But by the 1070s, so post-Norman conquest, there are stories circulating. Adam of Bremen, a German writer, claims that uh, Edmund Ironside was poisoned. And by the 12th century, that's being extrapolated even further. Gamar claims that Edmund Ironside died on the toilet um, and was murdered on the toilet uh, by Danish forces. But these seem much later creations. And it does just seem a stroke of luck there that Edmund Ironside dies in November 1016, allowing Knut to succeed to the whole kingdom. So we, we finally got this this Danish presence on the on the English throne for sure, um, and the, this that presence has replaced the House of Wessex, which has as, as you said has been sort of on the throne since Alfred's time and uh, well well longer than that. But but from Alfred and from Athelstan, his grandson onward, they're calling themselves the King of England. So we finally got this replacement by this by this by this new grouping. But it's not it's not completely new, is it? Because you said we've had things like the Dane law. We've had this big Danish presence. This this Viking presence in England for, for some time. So I suppose what we need to sort of tackle is how much of a break is it to have Knut coming in? I keep saying Knut, I should say Knut, anyway, whatever. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and how important is his reign? Because it's not a short reign, he reigns for, for, for quite a while um, and uh, and presumably is, it makes some changes. Yeah, so Knut reigns for just under 20 years. Uh, he dies in November 1035. Um, and it's clear that his reign is really significant for England, but also that this idea of it being a very sharp divide from what's gone before has perhaps been exaggerated. Um, so if I start with sort of how important was Knut's reign, it might have less long-term effects than we sort of see with the Norman Conquest, but it's a bit unfair to judge the two, uh, seeing as 
we we don't have the sort of period of trial that you have afterwards with Anglo-Norman rulers. And it definitely, Knut's reign showed how conquest could make the most of already existing English systems, systems like tax and administration, to rule. And this likely inspired some Norman imitation as well. So that's one of the reasons it's perhaps hard to imagine the Norman conquest being quite as successful as it was had they not had the imitation beforehand and been able to see how other conquerors had in fact adapted to English practices already. And one of the other key things that we see is perhaps changes uh, in culture as well. There are new aspects and reworking of older culture, uh, older aspects of artwork. So that's recorded. um, We can see a hybridity between old styles, sort of this Anglo-Scandinavian style, which has been around for a longer period of time, but also new influences coming in into art. Um, and this is one of the contributors in our volume, Catherine Karkov, talks about this as being a, quite an ambiguous artwork post Knut's conquest, and perhaps as being part of an expression of trauma and of the violent events that um, had occurred to English society. So, for example, images of the harrowing of hell increase uh, in popularity during Knut's reign. So they're not exactly new. We have seen these in artwork before. But what we see is a new focus on individual human suffering within those, in these great images of um, sort of uh, people being dragged down into hell for their sins. And that's perhaps a Again, playing into this idea that uh, Viking conquest, that Danish conquest, is a reflection on the sins of the English people and on this idea that conquest is not not ever going to be a straightforward process. It's always going to involve violence and trauma for the population uh, that it's coming in uh, as ruling, as to rule over. But what we don't seem to see at this period is the same change in aristocracy that we see perhaps post-1066. And the Norman conquest is associated with a real break in aristocracy um, and changing in landholding practices. But that seems to be associated only really with the early years of Knut's rule. So it is very clear there is a purge of senior aristocratic uh, magnates. Um, So, for example, we can see initial violence in the murder of Iadric Striona in 1017, um, alleged attempts on Edmund Ironside's sons, the banishment of some people, and murder, for example, of the son of Yaldeman of Leofwine, who's called Northman. And whilst on the one hand that is a clear process of violence and um, imposition of a very clear break um, with some of the some of the ways of uh, managing and ruling um, that have happened during Ethelred's reign. That actually seems to be a lot of conciliation as well. Okay, so talk, you know th- that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you, talking about the suffering and harrowing, uh, that's that would be been most felt one would imagine by uh, those on the English side of the argument, and those perhaps who had more Danish affiliations from this from this long period might have been uh, quite keen on having uh, Knut on the throne. Um, so, uh, 
Knut, and he is is notable that he is called the Great, um, one of one of the only uh, monarchs to have that moniker. Um, he had this big challenge on his hand to bring those two factions together, and that you know they were two quite desperate disparate parts of of the kingdom he was um, attempting to rule, the English and the Danish. So how did he do that? How did his court uh, operate? And and perhaps you could tell us a bit about the the skaldic praise poetry that uh, that uh, that happened at his court, because that's a really nice uh, way yeah. of trying to understand it. Yeah, no, the, um, the praise poetry is a fantastic source that we have for understanding this period of uh, Knut's reign. But it's probably worth mentioning here that the although there is a sharp divide in some sense between the English and the Danish factions, we also need to remember that the Danes have been settling in England for many generations. So there is, to some extent, already an Anglo-Danish uh, faction, and there are already uh, intermarriages between uh, the Danes who have settled for many generations uh, and the English. So it, they're perhaps not quite entirely uh, within England, entirely separate camps. But the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle gives this impression of initial trauma and violence and then sort of assimilation. And it's very clear that uh, Knut uh, wants to put men who will do a good job in place. Uh, that doesn't matter whether they're Danish or whether they're English. So some of the men he brings with him do stay around in England, but others are paid off and they return to Scandinavia. But there's also acceptance among the English aristocracy who have perhaps been quite disillusioned with Ethelred's rule before uh, before Knut came to the throne. And we see the promotion of some of these um, English magnates throughout Knut's reign. Godwin, for example, Earl Godwin, who your listeners might be more familiar with from a sort of from his son's involvement in the uh, in the Norman conquest and Harold Godwinson obviously becoming King Harold in 1066. But Earl Godwin becomes an earl underneath Knut, and he marries Knut's sister-in-law, Geetha, as well. He visits Denmark with Knut, and then he becomes Earl of Wessex. And we see other magnates as well, similarly, uh, Leofric, Earl of Mercia, who retains his post under four kings. So there is this kind of pr pragmatic understanding of Danish and English getting along, and uh, Knut's not afraid to promote senior English people either. As I said, I'm returning to that word pragmatic, but Knut is pragmatic in his rule of England in that sense. Um, but that's where we come to the praise poetry, because what I've been talking about so far is all reliant on sources like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, the law codes. It's all very much from an English perspective. What the skaldic praise poetry gives us is an Old Norse perspective. It's a vernacular text. It's uh, written in Old Norse, and it gives a really different perspective on Knut's rule. Now, these are reconstructed texts, so we have to be a little bit careful with how we use them as sources um, because we don't have the actual text surviving as they were written down during Knut's life. But we're pretty certain they were written during Knut's life. And they can be dated to two key points in his reign, one immediately post-conquest in 1016, and then the other around 1027, which is a very important part of Knut's reign because that sees his visit to Rome, which I think we'll talk about a bit later, um, but also that sees his campaign in Norway and his conquest of Norway. So these two key points of conquest see a peak in uh, Old Norse poetry being written in England. And some of it's very sophisticated. So it, we, there are questions about about audience, about who would have been listening to this. And Charles Inslee talks about that in his uh, his chapter in the volume. 
but others are far simpler. But what is clear is that these poems are written for a Danish audience. They're not written with the expectation that English um, men at court would have understood it. It's very clearly for a Danish. And they deal with a conqueror's perspective of what's happening in England. So there's a blend of Christian and pagan imagery, which you don't see in the law codes, for example. There's uh, themes that arise about celebrating Knut's displacement of Edgar's line. Again, we do not see that in the other texts, which are very much stressing continuity and uh, legitimacy. And these skaldic praise poetry give us a bit of an insight into the idea that actually ideas of identity were probably far more contested than we actually have evidence for. So the Danish and the English were living alongside, and particularly the new conquering uh, class of Danes, but we probably can't see them as exactly unified. And there was definitely, um, definitely an insight into that which is provided by the praise poetry. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And the three together, sort of king, queen and possible heir to the throne, that's a real common thing that you see happening also within a European context, within charter documents. And I think it's a real clear sign that Edward did have a plan for the succession. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You mentioned the papacy then, um, so let's 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 jump on to that and to uh, England's sort of role in Europe, um, because uh, as you as you talked about earlier, that England had long relationships with Normandy uh, and and uh, that part of northern France, um, but there's some interesting stuff in in the volume about. England's role as a European country, particularly in terms of trading, European politics, and England's relationships with the papacy as well. Um, so I suppose, you know, did, did did things change markedly with with Knut coming to the throne? Did that change the relationship? Did it move the dynamic? Um, and, and how far was England enmeshed in the in the wider European polity? Well, there's often an assumption that um, that it's that it's 1066 that brings England into Europe um, and that this is, you know, uh, there haven't been very many contacts with the European mainland before and then suddenly 1066 happens and the Normans come in. But that's completely contradicted when we look at uh, Knut's reign. And this idea that actually England is very involved within Europe, not just a one-way sort of influence, looking to the continent, for examples, or uh or England influencing areas on the continent, but very much England being an integral part of a broader European um, community. That That's very clear in most of the essays throughout the book, um, and particularly in that written by Timothy Bolton, which talks about some of these European connections. 
So Anglo-Saxon England has been connected to Europe. We've seen alliances with ruling families in the continent between the Anglo-Saxon ruling house and um, people, for example, the German kings. Um, And we've seen artistic connections and craftsmen. But what's clear is that Knut's reign marks a real increase in intensification of these contacts, not just with very uh, close regions like Flanders and Normandy, which have been key points um, for uh, exiles fleeing from England and key points for hosting uh, Vikings as they're raiding or settling in England. But Knut's reign marks a really clear shift We've got some things that have been going on throughout the 11th century that continue, so trade is perhaps one of them. Um, Across the 11th century, trade remains quite constant and there seems to be minimal disturbance to it. So uh, there's regular merchant visits to Flanders, for example, and Germany. Um, Ethelred's law code has mentioned Rouen merchants being in London to trade wine. Uh, And there's been the cultural exchange of objects, which Julia Crick mentions in the manuscripts of her paper. But some of these other aspects do quite clearly change very dramatically uh, post-Danish conquest. So we see Knut wanting to present himself as a ruler on a European stage. And I think that's a really key point of this idea about legitimising his rule. He maintains and he expands links with Europe beyond just Scandinavia. So we'd expect him to bring in these connections from Denmark, Norway, Scandinavia. But perhaps what we wouldn't suspect and what might be new to your listeners is that there isn't a decline in England's contact with other close neighbours. In fact, that kind of sparks off. So we can think of Knut's pilgrimage to Rome, for example, as being one of these key moments of showing contact with uh, the European continent. He's present there for the imperial coronation of Conrad II, um, who is becoming emperor of of the German realm. uh, And Knut has an honoured role in that ceremony, as far as we know. And part of this is to help counter ideas that he was a pagan king. He wants to present himself as a Christian ruler, and we can see that in his extravagant piety as well. He gifts um, to monasteries, and uh, he's involved in the translation of saints' relics. But there's also a kind of penitential aspect. Pilgrimage to Rome is something we see other people doing as well across this period, and that's one key contact uh, with the European mainland, um, is this idea of pilgrimage but it has a very penitential aspect and there is a sense that that Knut knows that he needs to present a penitential um, face to a European society who perhaps has been has been made uneasy by the way in which he came to the throne and the way in which his father came to the throne of England. Okay so it's um you kind of Knut sounds like a Viking, um, but perhaps the way he ruled was 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 less Viking than one would expect. Particularly as you as you talked about in terms of the of his uh, Christian um, uh, his Christian aspirations and, and his his desire to be seen as a, as a as a good Christian ruler. Now now look, we've got we, we, I've asked you to cover far too much uh, um, material, so we're going to have to skip on uh, in our story a bit. So Knut dies. Um, that isn't the end of the of the Scandinavian um, rulership in in England. Uh, his sons Harold Harefoot and Half Knut then follow him. Um, but then a few years after after Knut's death, that is the end, and Edward the Confessor comes to the throne. Edward the Confessor, well, Edward who becomes Edward the Confessor um, uh, in ten forty. 
1042 um uh, becomes king um and he's he's Wessex he you know he's the old you know he's he's the old line so surely that's the end of the story right there's no more there's no more uh, Scandinavian influence and that's uh, and that's 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 the end of it and uh, we're back to back to the way we were well, I think it's very tempting to see um, Edward's return to the throne as a return to the Wessex line um, and everything's all back to normal and it resets as if the Danish conquest has never happened. But of course, that's not the case. Um, 30 years of Danish rule aren't just forgotten. And in fact, there's some suggestion that in fact, Edward's reign is far more like his stepfather Knut's uh, than his father Ethelred's. Um, and it's worth pointing out there, um, I mentioned briefly Queen Emma. I don't think I'd mentioned that she actually is queen for two kings. One of the West Saxon line, Ethelred, and then queen of the conquering Danish king, Knut. Um, and this is part of the problem at the uh, post-Knut's death is this uh, struggle between the different sons of Knut and the different sons of Ethelred. So when Edward comes to the throne, there is some suggestion in the source at the end of the 11th century that the English actually make Edward agree to maintain the laws of Canute when he exceeds in uh, 1041. So Edward is perhaps having to there actually promise to reign like the Danish king. Um, there's definitely not a clear break. But what Edward does bring in is a close relationship with Normandy. Normandy has always been important, and that's one of the reasons that Queen Emma is so important to both uh, Ethelred and to Knut, um, because she's from the line of the Norman dukes, um, she's related in to uh, the, the Norman rulers, and Edward has grown up in Normandy. He's left, um, he's left England uh, in... 1014 and then perhaps possibly was back briefly before then uh, returning to Normandy in 1016. Um, but he spent his entire life growing up in Normandy and he spends 25 years, yeah, about 25 years there in exile, moving around northwest France, not just in Normandy but poss possibly other points as well. And he begins his reign as a co-king under his half-brother, Carthknut. So it's also worth remembering there that he's not coming to the throne necessarily as a Norman continental king um, or as the reviver of the West Saxon line. He's coming in as the half-brother and co-ruler of Harthaknut, the son of his mother, Emma, and Knut. But then Harthaknut dies and Edward inherits the throne entirely to himself uh, but he also marries into the Anglish-Danish aristocracy. So he's got these large earls who have played a prominent role in Knut's reign, so we, Godwin in particular. Um, and Godwin is married to, um, to Geetha, who's got Danish roots. So Edward marries their daughter Edith and marries into this Anglo-Danish aristocracy. So again, this idea of legitimacy through marriage, but the legitimacy that Edward is seeking is the Anglo-Danish community. And Edward then gives favour to the Godwin family. They have at least seven sons and two daughters, so huge numbers of children to inherit lots of lovely patches of land and take over as earls in various places. And that's where we see Harold coming to uh, power through uh, Edward's reign as well. And Edward's household that he brings with him is 
does have some Norman people in it. So uh, he has a few continental men who accompany him to England in the 1040s. Um, some are his kinsmen, like Ralph of Mons, who's the son of his half-sister. Um, other ecclesiastical men, like the abbot of Jumierge, Robert, who becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he gives land to Bretons. And there's Norman, definitely Norman visitors at court throughout uh, Edward's reign. But a lot of this is continuity as well with Canute's reign. Okay, now we're going to have to we're going to have to get to the to the to the end of our story here. Uh, but there's one more thing that I want to I want to talk about, um, and it sort of it follows on some of the themes we've talked about this continuity from uh, from Canute and and Europe and and Europe being part of the story. And that's the fact that we almost get uh, the grandson of Edmund Ironside, the uh, the, the the chap who. Uh, ruled before Canute, um, he almost uh, gets to be uh, the king after 1066, after the demise of uh, Harold II. So this is uh, the chap you've mentioned earlier, Edgar Atheling, um, who uh, had been in Europe for, for much of the time that we're talking about, or at least his his father and uh, he was, he'd been in Kiev, he'd been in Hungary. So just just tell us what goes on there, and why don't we why don't we see him on the throne? Because this is your this is your chapter in the uh, in the in the book about child kingship. So so just gives a sense of of, of of what's going on there. Yes, this is my pet personal topic. Um, so Edward is the grandson of Edmund. Uh, sorry, Edgar is the grandson of Edmund uh, Ironside. So king for seven months in 1016, and he's the son of. Edgar is the son of Edward the Exile, who has been off in exile, probably in Hungary. So Edgar Etheling is probably born in Hungary. Um, Edward the Exile is recalled into England in 1057 and possibly brings his family with him then um, at Edward the Confessor's request. So they come into England in 1050s when Edgar is still a young boy. We don't really know how old he is. We think probably um, probably he was at least nine or ten, maybe a couple of years older in 1066, but likely not more than about 14 or 15. Um, we just know that he's a similar age to William's own son, Robert Curtos, uh, but that isn't a very helpful gauge of age. Um, and age has often been cited as a decisive reason why Edgar Etheling doesn't get the throne in 1066. Um, so he has a very strong claim. He grandson of uh, a reigning king. Um, he's been brought, his family have been brought back by Edward, clearly to present um, a uh, possible succession. And he's been associated with uh, Edward of the Confessor's reign as well and rule. Um Edward actively recognised Edgar as his heir, and we have the evidence in that in another Liber Vitae, of, well, in the same Liber Vitae I mentioned earlier, the Newminster Liber Vitae, this uh, book of names, book of lives, um, where Edgar's name appears directly with Edward the Confessors and Queen Edith's. And the three together, sort of king, queen, and possible heir to the throne, that's a real common thing that you see happening also within a European context, uh, king, queen and son or heir um, within charter documents. And I think it's a real clear sign that Edward did have a plan for the succession and his plan was that it would be another West Saxon king, as was he intended, and that was going to be Edgar Etheling because Edgar Etheling's fam uh, father, Edward, had died um, just after arriving in England. 
So although age has been seen as decisive, my argument is that actually there's other things that are far more decisive and age really wouldn't have been an issue at this point. We think back to Ethelred coming to the throne as a young boy. Um, Ethelred's brother similarly had come to the throne as a young boy, although he had been murdered. So that's perhaps not as good a, uh, an example um, or comparison. Um, but at the same point in 1066, you have the King of France and the King of Germany who have both come to the throne as young children. Um, King of Germany is a five-year-old boy, King of France as um, a nine-year-old boy. So you have these contemporary examples. And as we've already seen, England is very interconnected. People like Archbishop Yaldred of York, who've gone off to, um, to make contacts with German court and bring back Edgar Etheling and his family to England, they would know that there was a young king on the throne of Germany. They would know that there was a young king on the throne of France. Um, so this modern kind of tendency to uh, think that age was somehow a barrier to Edgar Etheling's succession perhaps doesn't stand up when we actually put it in a wider European context. And it's there's two points in 1066 it's worth saying that Edgar could have become king. The first is in January 1066 um, when Edward himself dies. And the second point is later in the year, this... Uh, invasion of William. So in that October point after Harold's death. Um, and in both cases, we have some evidence that there was serious consideration of him. Uh, in the first case, possibly uh, Harold had potentially sworn an oath to him, maybe even on uh, Edward's deathbed. And instead, very, very quickly after Edward's death, Harold gets himself crowned. Um, and it's clear Harold at that point does have the support of the leading, uh, leading ecclesiastical magnates and leading nobles. But then when we come to October and we have William pre presenting a challenge, having just beaten Harold and killed him at the Battle of Hastings, we see that... Um, London rises in support of Edgar Etheling, or at least closes its doors to William. It sees Edgar as the king. So that's a second point where Edgar could have become king, and that's perhaps even a more likely point where he would have, um, because he has the support of uh, senior earls, um, so he has the support of Ealdred, the Archbishop of York, and he has the support of the citizens of London. And as we've seen, the citizens of London, when they decide to open their gates or close their gates, um, can be very decisive in who becomes king uh, and uh, who then is crowned. So one of the main reasons then that Edgar didn't gain the throne, at least in January 1066, seems to be in Harold's failure to fulfil an oath to Edward. But by October 1066, it's clear that the support then peters out for him. Um, although he does initially have the support of the earls and of uh, the archbishop, they do then turn to support uh, William. But William, because he's concerned to present himself as a legitimate successor, doesn't take vengeance on Edgar Etheling. And actually, what we see is um, what we see is him kind of putting up with Edgar Etheling being a bit of a rebellious sort who he then goes off to exile up at the Scottish court and ends up causing trouble for William for a couple of a couple of years but he never really after that manages to pose a serious um serious threat to the throne but what 
is important is that his sister, Margaret, then marries into the Scottish royal household and their daughter, ultimately it's through Margaret that um, we get Edgar Etheling's family back on the line of the throne. Um, the blood of the West Saxon kings is passed through to the Plantagenet kings who've come through uh, the, uh, the Norman line because Margaret, uh, Edgar Etheling's sister, Margaret's daughter, Matilda ends up marrying Henry I of England. So Edgar Etheling doesn't become king, but eventually through his sister, we do get the uniting of the uh, bloodlines in this marriage between Matilda Edith, um, she changes her name, Matilda Edith, um, and Henry I of England. Fantastic. Um, and I, I've, I've been doing a bit of work on the biotapestry and I, I'm fascinated by uh, Edgar Affling's omission from the tapestry. And my, and my view is um, that, uh, that perhaps that is uh, indicative of the fact that uh, it was kind of it was politically embarrassing for William uh, to acknowledge the fact that, that this guy was in the background. So that he's kind of the biotapestry kind of writes him out of history and, and perhaps has, uh, has, has led to, to the fact that people people don't know too much about him but that's yeah. that's my view and you uh, you, you may yeah. disagree I don't uh, one of the one of the interesting things is that when william makes his own claim he tries to uh, legitimize his claim through uh, queen emma um who obviously edward the confessor's mother he makes his claim because he is the great nephew of uh queen emma who is also a great nephew edgar etheling so william is trying to present himself on the same level of kinship as Edgar Etheling. There wouldn't be a reason to do that unless you genuinely thought that that was a challenge to your uh, to your power and to your legitimacy. Okay, well, well, look, you have very ably demonstrated to us why we need to understand 1016 and what followed uh, if we're to attempt to understand 1066 and why 1016 and the rest of the 11th century is interesting in itself for all those uh, interesting points that you've brought up about uh, uh, the European connections and, and all the other stuff that we've talked about. So, Thank you very much, Emily, Dr. Emily Ward, for uh, for telling us about that and the book Conquest in 11th Century England, 1016, 1066, edited by yourself and Laura Ash, is published now by Boydell and Brewer. Yes, and it's an excellent book. And thank you very much to all our contributors. And I hope I haven't mauled their research too much by talking about the book. <laughs> that was Emily Ward. If you want to hear the bonus material from this episode, head to our website, historyextra.com. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Georgians. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.